the word comes from Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. June 25th, 1967, uh, the British Broadcasting Company, in conjunction with 19 other television networks around the world, put together the very first live worldwide television show. It was called Our World. It lasted two hours. And it was broadcast to 26 different countries and it had a viewership of over 400 million people. Any of you remember or have heard of that show? Okay. Any of you know the Beatles? Seriously. Okay. Thanks. So, uh, do you guys know, know the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love? Well, the BBC came to the Beatles and they actually asked them to write a song for this broadcast. Now, according to Paul McCartney, the song was actually already written before the, the, they were asked to do it, but it, because it fit what the BBC was looking for, uh, they used this song. Now, on June 25th, 1967, there was the first time that All You Need Is Love was actually ever performed before a live audience. And if you don't know the words uh, from that song, uh, it was written by uh, John Lennon. Here's some of the lyrics. He says, there is nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing that you can make that can't be made. No one who can save but can't be saved. There is nothing you can know that can't be known. And of course, the, the line that's repeated throughout the song is, all you need is love. Now, the idea behind this, this television show was um, that, that technology could be used through the, the cameras and, and, and TV and, and these new things called satellites, that these things could be used in order to make the world feel smaller, that, that uh, we could see people and experience people on the other side of the planet. And in a way, we could recognize that, that, that we're unified, it, that we are all human, that we're all occupiers of the same uh, planet. And, and so in that way, use technology to begin to break down walls and barriers that exist between us as, as humanity. And, and and this, this message of love permeated the airwaves. Right? Now, there's a lot of truth in, in what John wrote. There's a lot of truth in, in that song. We do need love. And we are quick to recognize that, that love is a powerful force in, in our universe. Love is used or can be leveraged to change things. Love is very, very powerful, and we, we need it. But where did this idea of love come from? Like, what, where did this idea of, 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 of exalting this, this virtue of love so high, where did this originate? You know, among of all the religions of the world, only Christianity has at its center 
a deity which not only commands its followers to love, but also himself loves. I mean, you don't have to know very much about Christianity or about the Bible, but you probably know one verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, right? That among all the religions of the world, only Christianity has as its highest ethic love. All the other religions of the world has as, as their highest ethic, ethic this idea of self-denial, even Buddhism, which doesn't have a central deity, believes in, in self-denial, that, that you withhold certain things from yourself for the sake of earning something. It's about, it's about self-sacrifice in order to appease whatever, in order to be blessed, in order to receive, in order to get. It's about self-sacrifice. And so you would say, well, wait a minute. Well, the Bible's full of sacrifice, right? In fact, in a certain light, the, the, the Bible is dripping with the blood of sacrifices. But there is a dif difference there. In that, with all the religions of the world, you sacrifice in order to be accepted. But with the God of the Bible, you sacrifice because you've already been accepted. You look at the very first sacrifice in the Bible. It's God sacrificing an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve. Noah sacrifices after he's saved through a flood. Abraham sacrifices after he's been brought out of the Ur of the Chaldees. The, the children of Israel, they sacrifice to God after they've been chosen and set apart by God. Sacrifice in the Bible is a response to what God has done. And you might say, well, what about atoning sacrifices? What about sin sacrifices? When people in the, in the Old Testament, when they sinned, they had to sacrifice an animal to make up for that sin, right? Isn't that appeasing a deity? Well, Hebrews is helpful here. It, it, Hebrews says that, that all of the, the blood of goats and bolts and bulls and rams and all of that, all of that ultimately pointed to Jesus, that all of them were incapable of appeasing or propitiating the wrath of God. Only one sacrifice was able to do that. The Son of God comes and he takes on flesh and he lives the life that we're not able to live. And he takes that life and he offers it as a sacrifice to God the Father on the cross. And you see, once again, it is God who is sacrificing. And it is God who is sacrificed. Why? Love. For the Christian, sacrifice is the response to what God has already done. And so we look at this world that has this, this ethic of, of, of love and it exalts love. Where did that come from? came from the cross of Jesus. It came from God's sacrificial choice of the cross. Now, that television program from 55 years ago tried to, to convince us that we could be saved apart from God. That humanity had grown beyond God. That God is for the primitives. God is for the uneducated. God is, God is for the people that don't know any better. But we as a culture have gone past that. We in our medical and, and technological advances, we have achieved something that previous generations of humanity has never achieved before. We don't need God. We, through the power of technology, can convey using this medium, this love to the rest of the world. The result, though, of that love is that it is devoid of power. It's powerless in three ways. The first is its origin. This love denies the origin of love. We deny that it comes from God. You see, if there is no God, the origin of love isn't him, it's us. 
See, if there's no creator, and and if our existence is the result of of some sort of evolutionary natural selection, then, then whatever concept we have of love is some sort of biochemistry that enables us to procreate. That's all that it is. If you do give love some sort of mystical or spiritual force in us, it's still confined to us so that that it's limited by us. I am only able to love what I can love. It's limited by my character flaws. It's limited by my biases. It's limited by my prejudices. This kind of love is devoid of power. The second uh, way that, that love loses its power is because we change its purpose. The purpose of love is ultimately the glory of God. God first loved us. We love him and we glorify him. The purpose of love is is the glorification, the exaltation of our creator. That's why it exists. But if you remove God from the equation, what is the purpose then of love? If it's not other, it's me. It's inward. It's it's selfish. It's self-focused. So that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time when we love, we love only for the sake of what we can get in return. We, we choose a spouse, not on, on what they need, but on what we need from them. We even have children in order to fulfill selfish desires. We get involved in, in, in issues of social justice, not because we love the downtrodden, but because by getting involved, we elevate ourselves and give ourselves a superiority. We're woke. It's about self-love. Thirdly, it loses its power because we change its substance. Paul tells us at the beginning of Ephesians that you were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. In other words, God saw you. He saw everything that you would do. He saw everything that you would say. He saw everything that you would become. Every misstep, every mistake, every failure of your life, God already knows it, and yet he chose you. He enters into love relationship with you with eyes wide open, completely knowing who you are. He doesn't have some rose-colored glasses covering his eyes. He doesn't have some sort of love for you that is dependent upon the wind changing. Oftentimes, we love, and it's based on feelings, and it's based on emotions, I feel love for you. I'm enamored by your beauty. I love the, the, the way that you cook, and I, I love the way that you do this, and, and all of a sudden I find out that you snore and that you leave wet towels on the floor, and now I don't love you anymore. It's a love that's based on feeling and emotion. It has no real substance. It's not solid, but the love of God is a choice. Because of that, it's solid. But because we lose out on those th- three things, we see that, that love has become power, powerless. But the truth is, is that power love, powerful love, is seen in God's sacrificial choice. It's seen in the cross. So this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at the second half of Ephesians 3. And what we see in this passage is Paul, once again, is going to pray on our behalf. And he's going to pray that we would know and understand the power of God's love. We're going to see this aspect, seven different aspects of this powerful love. And and we'll spend a little bit more time on some of these aspects than we will with others. But we're going to begin with, with this position of powerful love that Paul talks about. Um, Watchman Nee 
was a, a Chinese pastor and writer. And um, when the Cultural Revolution took place in China and Western missionaries were kicked out of the country, um, Ni uh, began to, to, to work with house churches and underground churches, and, and, and through him, the, the church uh, in China continued to grow and to thrive. But in 1952, he was arrested for prime, crimes that he didn't commit. Ultimately, he spent 20 years in prison, and he died in, in prison in 1972. So he knows something about what Paul went through. But, but he wrote this little book, and, and, and the book is it's named Sit, Walk, Stand. And, and the purpose of the book was, as Nee describes it, it is, it is a way of understanding the three main aspects or, or, or movements within the book of, of Ephesians. And he says that the first aspect is, is sitting. It's, it has to do with our position in Christ. The second is walking, which is, is about our life in the world. And the third is stand, uh, which has to do with our attitude towards our enemy. But it's this, it's this first word, sit, that I want to spend a little bit of time with before as, as, as we dive in. Sit. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, And when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our sixth week in the book of Ephesians. After this week, we'll be halfway done. But Paul spends these first three chapters preaching to us about who God is and what God has done. And my hope is, is that if you've been involved in this series, that, that you would see by now how much God has done. In terms of your salvation, in terms of saving us, that we would see just how much God has done. That God has done everything. And the only thing that is required of us is that we believe in what he's already done. That he has done everything. In the beginning, God created us to glorify him, to love him. Instead, we chose to love ourselves. We chose to disconnect from him. We walked away. We unplugged from the author of life, the author of light, and the author of love. And the result of that is death. Spiritual death immediately, eventual physical death. And sin entered our story. Because of that, we were doomed. We were separated from God. We were alienated. We were strangers. We were without hope in the world. But God, but God sends his son to, to, to live the life that we can't live in order to die the death that we couldn't afford to die. He sacrifices for us so that we might live. You see, in Christ's death, we die to sin. But then God the Father raises us up to new life. And in Christ's resurrection, we are raised. And Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in his seating and enthronement, we are seated and enthroned. See, what Paul is saying here is, 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 spiritually speaking, right now, you exist on a plane seated at the right hand of God. Spiritually speaking, that is where you are. And what Nee points out is that this is a work that's already been done. That you begin your Christian life with the work completed for you. You begin your Christian life in a state of rest. The work of your salvation has been accomplished. It is completed in the cross of Jesus Christ. You begin in rest. And he points back to first creation. And he says, in the first creation, what we see is God creating the world in six days. And on the sixth day, he creates humanity. On the seventh day, he rests. And what he points out is that our first day was rest. Humanity's first day was in the rest of God. New creation is the same way. We begin in the rest of God because it has been done for us. See, our position 
in this powerful love is seated. We're seated because of God's sacrificial choice to save. The next thing to see that Paul outlines is the posture of this powerful love. Ephesians 3.12, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. If, if we live on two different planes and, and, and spiritually we're with Christ now, what does it say about where we are physically? Are we doomed? Are we, are we abandoned by God? Are we left alone to figure it out on our own? Paul says, no, no, you have boldness. You have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We have this bold confidence because of what has done for us so that we can go into the presence of God and we can ask. The second thing that we see, though, in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees. I'm sorry, back one. Nope, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He goes to his knees. And so we have bold confidence, but we also have humble worship. And and what is he referring to here when he says, for this reason? What he's doing is he's looking back to what he said earlier in Ephesians, and he's talking about this new temple. It's this temple that's built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, and we as saints are being joined together like living stones forming this new dwelling, this new temple that that God lives in. This This is an echo of what we see back in 2 Chronicles 6, when after the first temple was finished, Solomon, who's standing on this platform, hits his knees in humble worship of God for his creation of this temple. That God would dwell with us. It's, it's a humble picture of worship. See, this is the posture that we get to have because of this powerful love. It's courageous confidence. It's bold confidence, but it's humble worship before him because of God's sacrificial choice of the cross. Look at the source of this powerful love. Verse 14 again, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. You know, Paul continually refers to the God of the universe as Father. And so did Jesus. And we shouldn't get used to how marvelous that is to call God Father. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And this is the assertion that Paul is making here. He's not saying that God is like a father. He's not saying that God is like your father. What he's saying is is that God is the standard for what fatherhood is. I want you to understand that. God is the standard for what what fatherhood is supposed to be. So if you're looking at your own physical dad, your own biological father, and, and you think that God is like him, you've got it backwards and you've got it wrong. If you look at your own dad and you see the ways that he has failed, the ways he's walked out, the way that he's maybe been abusive, the way that he hasn't loved, or on the other hand, you see a father who's been good and kind and generous and has been loving. Even the best of dads pale in comparison to God the Father. Don't look at your earthly father to see what God is like. Look at your heavenly father to see what your earthly father should be like. The fact is that none of us measure up to that standard because our heavenly father is wealthy. Look at what he says next. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. 
Look at the wealth of this God. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm not saying that if you believe in God, he's gonna make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. What I'm saying is, is the wealth of God is to lavish on us the riches of his mercy and the riches of his grace and the riches of his powerful love. You see, we don't have a broke God. We don't have a chintzy God. We don't have a cheap God. We have a God who generously lavishes his wealth upon us. Keep going. Through his spirit in your inner being, the Holy Spirit becomes the muscle of this powerful love in us. But keep going, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The the idea is that through faith, Jesus comes and he takes up residence in you. It's not that Jesus comes and visits you for a little bit. It's not that Jesus comes and crashes on your couch. It's that Jesus moves into your life and he He knocks down walls and he builds up new ones and and he restores it and he makes it beautiful and he makes it his home. He makes it his throne to reign and to rule over your life. Jesus moves in. Do you see the Trinitarian God at work in you to establish his powerful love? God's sacrificial choice. The security of powerful love next. Verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul uses two metaphors to say the same thing. This love's not going anywhere. This love is not going to fall over on you. That if you are grounded, if you are rooted in this love, that though the winds of life may, may throw their worst gales at you, you will not be knocked over. That if you are grounded in the foundation of Christ, that when the earth shifts beneath your feet, you will not topple over. The love of God is made of sturdier, solid stuff. And it's not going anywhere. We have these ideas and these notions about what love looks like, but but human love is so often, it's based on feelings and emotions that are here today and gone tomorrow. But God's love isn't like that. It's the security of powerful love that comes from God's sacrificial choice. Next, the dimensions of that powerful love. Verse 18. May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. But did you notice what he says? With all the saints. You know, it is impossible to look at this letter to the Ephesians and walk away thinking that Paul was talking to individual Christians outside of community. It's impossible to get that notion. I love what the writers of Total Church say. It says, if the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. The the reality is to understand the fullness of God's powerful love towards you. It means to be a part of God's body. It means to be a part of Christ's church. The other night, um, I was looking for an old picture. I had a buddy who shaved off his eyebrows accidentally, and and as a good friend, I just wanted to dig that out and remind him. And and so I was looking through old pictures, and and I saw these pictures were about 10 years old, and, and what they were was, um, we were living in Washington at the time, my, my wife and I, and we just brought our boys home. And, uh, and I was working a lot, and I couldn't get away, but my wife decided to take the boys on a 12-hour-long trip to California to go see her parents. 
And along the way, she stopped in, in Redding, California. And Redding is where we met. It's, uh, it's the, the first church that I was ever on staff at. And, and we had this family there. And, and they knew that she was coming through Redding. And so they, they all met at, at, a, at a, a restaurant there. And so we have these pictures. I wasn't there. I have these pictures of all of these people come together. And, and they were people that walked through our story with us. Like they knew our heartache when it came to, to having a family and starting a family. And so they, they got to see our boys for the first time. And so there's all these people that are just loving on these little boys and they're loving on my wife. And I'm just looking at this picture and I'm reminded of, of the love of God that I have experienced through God and his church over the course of my life. And I experienced that here and I experienced that with you. And it's not just people that I'm in house church with. It's others, but, but I have this family with you and I experience the love of God through you. And the thing is, is, is if church is something that you come and do for a couple hours on Sunday morning and then you leave, you'll never experience that. With all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. John Stott writes in regards to these words, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him into heaven. I want you to picture with me. You, you come to the edge of a great precipice, and there's a great chasm beneath you, and you can't see the bottom of it. You want to plunge, the, you want to find out how deep it is, and so you find the biggest rock that you can pick up. And you go to the edge and you heave it over the edge. And what do you, what do, you do? You're listening. You're, you're listening for it to hit bottom. And you could wait a thousand years and you'll never hear it hit the bottom. And such is the love of God. You see, you can't get around it. You can't go over it. You can't get underneath it. His love for you is huge. You can't cross it. Such is the love of God for you. This is the powerful love of God. This is God's sacrificial choice to save you. It's the dimensions of his love. Look at the experience. Verse 19. And that you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? You know, we, we looked at this last week where, where Paul, he has to create a word. He has to invent a word to describe the riches of God. Like the same idea. So like, like if you took every metaphor you had for love and you stacked it one on top of another, you would never be able to describe accurately and communicate accurately what his love is really like. Paul wants us to experience something that we just can't even articulate to other people. That, it, that, it, that it's so dumbfounding to us, it's so breathtaking, that's so mind-blowing to us. That's the powerful love of God. God's sacrificial choice is demonstrated in the cross. Now look at the result. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, in Scripture, we, we come across this, this text that for us as fallen human beings, 
is, is really difficult to grasp. And it's where God tells us to be holy as he is holy. And there seems to be this impossible standard that's put before us that we are supposed to become something that as fallen sinners we have no ability to become. When Jesus was asked what, what the, the, the most important ethic was, what was the most important commandment, Jesus responded with love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That, that the fullness that God is working out through his spirit in us is a filling of love toward God and toward our neighbor. It's such a filling that, that as we are, we are filled up by this love, there's not a pocket, there's not an air bubble, there, there's not a fissure within this, 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 this jar that, that can worship or, idolatry or idolize or, or, or love anything else but God, that we are filled to the brim only, purely with the love of God and love of neighbor. This is the, the fullness of which Paul is talking about. What Paul's saying is, is that is the end result. Spiritually, you're already there. Spiritually, you're seated at the right hand of God. Spiritually, you are justified before God. Spiritually, you are righteous. Spiritually, you are sitting with him. But physically, we recognize there's a lot of work to be done, and that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit in us, to change us, to fill us, to make us, and transform us into what we will one day become. This fullness, which Paul's talking about. Such is the powerful love, the result of God's sacrificial choice eventually in us. And lastly, I want to return to this position of powerful love once again. It's the one we started with. Paul says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, See, Paul is saying that we begin in this position that we're seated. The work is done. Christ has accomplished it all for us. Salvation is worked out. Salvation, that it's done. There's a bow on it. It's tied up. So we sit in that. And that's the first three chapters of Ephesians. But what happens from here is that we're going to begin to walk in this new identity. We're going to be walking in this world, carrying out this new identity for which we are, are sitting currently. And so just as we can trust God that he's done all the work to, to make us where we are and to seat us with Christ, we could also trust God to walk with us through our future. And what does he say there? He says, to him who is able, far more than that, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, more than that, far more abundantly than all that we ask, but even greater still, far more than all that we ask or even think. See, we have this good God, so we don't have to look elsewhere. We have this great God, so we don't have to be in control. We have this glorious God, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We have this gracious God. We don't have to fear. We have a great big God, and we can trust him to walk with us. And lastly, he closes with, with this verse in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's like, and they lived happily ever after. You know, the Bible, it begins with the union of a man and a woman presided over by God in the garden. And it ends with a wedding 
between a bride and a groom presided over by God. That is this great big love story that we get to be a part of. This beautiful love story. And see, what Paul is saying here is that, that God is, in the end, is going to get the glory. He's going to be glorified in the bride. He's going to be glorified in the groom. He's going to be glorified in this union. That God, by the power of his love, is going to do an end to sin and to death, to tears, to suffering, to pain. That in the end, all of those things are erased permanently and forever because of what he accomplishes by his great love. God's sacrificial choice of the cross to save you and to save me. And in the end, it is all made right. See, 55 years ago, there was this TV show that, that tried to convince us to believe that technology was the way out. How do you think we're doing 55 years later? These cameras. These cameras had the intent of being able to, to take something that was far away and bring it close enough for you to see. To see someone who lived on the other side of the planet and, and put them in your living room so that you could empathize with them and that you could see them. Cameras about the other person. Do you know what cameras are for now? The most used camera is the one on the front of your cell phone. How many of you, when you're doing a Zoom call, you find yourself staring at the little square that holds your own picture in it? I do. I have to do the hide yourself view thing. It's a, it's a picture of my own narcissism. I'm having a conversation with other people and I can only stare at myself. But the cameras that are meant to focus on others, we focus on ourselves. And these screens, these screens that were, were, was meant to bring the world into our living room so that we could understand, that we could connect with the rest of the world. Screens are not about connecting. Screens are about disconnecting. We spend more time staring at the tops of one another's heads because we're staring down at screens. We spend hours and hours binge-watching shows so that we could disconnect from the world. And these satellites flying over our heads, built with the intent of, of creating better communication with one another. We have access to all of these bits of information at any given time. So much information. But who's listening? Communication is meant to be both ways. It's supposed to be giving and it's supposed to be receiving. And yet we have become so inwardly focused. All we want to do is give our information. All we want is to have our platform. And all we want to have is our soapbox so we can tell the world what we want to say. And there is no listening. See, technology has not made us better. It has just reinforced the fallen nature that already existed. Technology cannot change the human heart. Only the power of God can do that. Only God's sacrificial choice can change us. And we have it. Look, if you're in Christ, if you're, if you're here and you have faith in what Jesus has done for you, then this is really good news. You don't have to do anything. Do you understand? You are seated with Christ in the heavens. You don't have to do anything. The work has been done for you. 
And so for those of you who are there this morning, you're striving and you're trying to attain and you're trying to grasp hold of your own salvation and you're trying to work it out yourself. This is gonna end up in one of two very bad places for you. Either it'll end up with your pride and your arrogance that you think that God owes you or it'll end up in your despair and your own destruction because you'll realize the depths of your failure because you can't earn it. But this is good news for you. It's been earned for you. It's been done for you. And what you were required to do is sit in the love of God. And if you're here this morning and you've done just the opposite, that you have run away from God and that you have given yourself over to every desire of your flesh and that you have surrendered to anything and everything that you have ever wanted and the result for you is that it has left you devastated and alone and broken. Here's the good news. Long before you were ever born, he saw you. Long before you ever messed up, he knew you would. Long before your failures, he knew about them and he chose you anyway. You cannot outsin the grace of God. And the work has been done for you. This is good news. Is this good news to you? This morning, I hope that we rest in that. We're going to get into the rest of Ephesians next week. We're going to get into the walking it out next week. We've seen who God is and what he's done. We've seen how that changes our identity. And, and, and next week, we'll see how we get to live because of that. But I want you to sit in this. I want us to take a, take a moment, take a Sunday, and sit in this truth that you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ because of his powerful love, because of God's sacrificial choice to save you. It is all accomplished. The work is done. And sit and rest in the grace and mercy and love of Jesus. And just for today, hopefully not just for today, but enjoy what your Creator and your Savior has done in you. And pray with Paul that you would understand the depths of this love that changed you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, the fact that we get to call you Father, the fact that you have made yourself known, and the fact that you so desire to pour out your generous wealth on us, and how offensive it must be when we try to earn your love. You have so much to give, so much mercy, so much grace. And Lord Jesus, how offensive it must be to you when we don't think that your cross is necessary and we try to save ourselves. You came and you sacrificed and you did what we could not do. And Holy Spirit, you came to guide. And you came to lead us. And you came to empower us in the truth. How offensive it must be when we try to do life without your presence. Holy Trinity, forgive us for the way that we've disconnected from you. And help us to turn in faith and know the love that surpasses all understanding. 
Help us to experience this love and help us to know this love not just for our own sakes, but to be conduits of this love to the rest of the world and around us. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.